a story with me Love who you want to be, who you are Learn these lessons and we'll go far It's story time Story time Story time with Mama G Hello everyone and welcome to Story Time with Mama G The podcast And it's time for Chapter 3 of The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde. And this chapter is very exciting. So we will go straight into it. But before we do, don't forget you can find me on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. Just search for at Stories. And also, it would be so wonderful and lovely of you if you could leave a review of this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and rate it, uh, subscribe to it, share it with your friends, because I know that lots and lots and lots of you are enjoying The Canterville Ghost, and I don't want anyone to miss out on this wonderful story by one of the world's LGBT icons, Oscar Wilde. Uh, But now, uh, as I said, let's get straight into chapter three. Next morning, when the Otis family met at breakfast, they discussed the ghost at some length. The United States minister was naturally a little annoyed to find that his present had not been accepted. I have no wish, he said, to do the ghost any personal injury, and I must say that, considering the length of time he has been in the house, I don't think it is at all polite to throw pillows at him. A very just remark at which... I am sorry to say, the twins burst into shouts of laughter. Upon the other hand, he continued, if he really declines to use the Rising Sun Lubricator, we shall have to take his chains from him. It would be quite impossible to sleep with such a noise going on outside the bedroom. For the rest of the week, however, they were undisturbed. The only thing that excited any attention being the continual renewal of the bloodstain on the library floor. This certainly was very strange, as the door was always locked at night by Mr. Otis, and the windows kept closely barred. The chameleon-like colour, also, of the stain excited a good deal of comment. Some mornings it was a dull, almost Indian red. Then it would be vermilion, then a rich purple, And once, when they came down for family prayers, according to the simple rites of the Free American Reformed Episcopalian Church, they found it a bright emerald green. These kaleidoscopic changes naturally amused the party very much, and bets on the subject were freely made every evening. The only person who did not enter into the joke was little Virginia, who, for some unexplained reason, was always a good deal distressed at the sight of the bloodstain, and very nearly cried the morning it was emerald green. The second appearance of the ghost was on Sunday night. Shortly after they had gone to bed, they were suddenly alarmed by a fearful crash in the hall. Rushing downstairs, 
they found that a large suit of old armour had become detached from its stand and had fallen on the stone floor, while, seated in a high-backed chair, was the Canterville ghost, rubbing his knees with an expression of acute agony on his face. The twins, having brought their pea-shooters with them, at once discharged two pellets on him with that accuracy of aim which can only be attained by long and careful practice on a writing master, while the United States minister covered him with his revolver and called upon him, in accordance with Californian etiquette, to hold up his hands. The ghost started up with a wild shriek of rage and swept through them like a mist, extinguishing Washington Otis's candle as he passed, and so leaving them all in total darkness. On reaching the top of the staircase, he recovered himself and determined to give his celebrated peal of demonic laughter. This he had on more than one occasion found extremely useful. It was said to have turned Lord Raker's wig grey in a single night, and had certainly made three of Lady Canterville's French governesses give warning before their month was up. He accordingly laughed his most horrible laugh, till the old vaulted roof rang and rang again. But hardly had the fearful echo died away when a door opened and Mrs Otis came out in a light blue dressing gown. "'I am afraid you are far from well,' she said, "'and have brought you a bottle of Dr. Dubal's tincture. "'If it is in digestion, you will find it a most excellent remedy.' "'The ghost glared at her in fury "'and began at once to make preparations "'for turning himself into a large black dog, "'an accomplishment for which he was justly renowned, "'and to which the family doctor always attributed "'the permanent idiocy of Lord Canterville's uncle, "'the honorary Thomas Horton. "'The sound of approaching footsteps, however, "'made him hesitate in his fell purpose, "'so he contented himself with becoming faintly phosphorescent "'and vanished with a deep churchyard groan, just as the twins had come up to him. On reaching his room, he entirely broke down and became a prey to the most violent agitation. The vulgarity of the twins and the gross materialism of Mrs Otis were naturally extremely annoying, but what really distressed him most was that he had been unable to wear the suit of mail. He had hoped that even modern Americans would be thrilled by the sight of a spectre in armour, if, for no more sensible reason, at least out of respect for their national poet Longfellow, over whose graceful and attractive poetry he himself had whiled away many a weary hour when the Cantervilles were up in town. Besides, it was his own suit. He had worn it with great success at the Kenilworth Tournament, and had been highly complimented on it by no lesser person than the Virgin Queen herself. Yet when he had put it on, he had been completely overpowered by the weight of the huge breastplate and steel cask, and had fallen heavily on the stone pavement, barking both his knees severely and bruising the knuckles of his right hand. For some days after this, he was extremely ill, and hardly stirred out of his room at all, except to keep the bloodstain in proper repair. However, by taking great care of himself, he recovered, 
and resolved to make a third attempt to frighten the United States minister and his family. He selected Friday, the 17th of August, for his appearance, and spent most of that day in looking over his wardrobe, ultimately deciding in favour of a large slouched hat with a red feather, a winding sheet frilled at the wrists and neck, and a rusty dagger. Towards evening, a violent storm of rain came on, and the wind was so high that all the windows and doors in the old house shook and rattled. In fact, it was just such weather as he loved. His plan of action was this. He was to make his way quietly to Washington Otis's room, gibber at him from the foot of the bed, and stab himself three times in the throat to the sound of slow music. He bore Washington a special grudge, being quite aware that it was he who was in the habit of removing the famous Canterville bloodstain by means of Pinkerton's Paragon detergent. Having reduced the reckless and foolhardy youth to a condition of abject terror, he was then to proceed to the room occupied by the United States minister and his wife, and there to place a clammy hand on Mrs. Otis's forehead while he hissed into her trembling husband's ear the awful secrets of the charnel house. With regard to little Virginia, he had not quite made up his mind. She had never insulted him in any way, and was pretty and gentle. A few hollow groans from the wardrobe, he thought, would be more than sufficient, or, if that failed to wake her, he might grabble at the counterpane with palsy-twitching fingers. As for the twins, he was quite determined to teach them a lesson. The first thing to be done was, of course, to sit upon their chests so as to produce the stifling sensation of nightmare. Then, as their beds were quite close to each other, to stand between them in the form of a green, icy-cold corpse till they became paralysed with fear, and finally to throw off the winding sheet and crawl around the room with white, bleached bones and one rolling eye in the character of dumb Daniel or the suicide skeleton, a role in which he had on more than one occasion produced a great effect and which he considered quite equal to his famous part of Martin the Maniac or the Masked Mystery. At half-past ten, he heard the family going to bed. For some time, he was disturbed by wild shrieks of laughter from the twins, who, with the light-hearted gaiety of schoolboys, were evidently amusing themselves before they retired to rest. But at a quarter past eleven, all was still, and, as midnight sounded, he sallied forth. The owl beat against the window panes. The raven croaked from the old yew tree, and the wind wandered moaning round the house like a lost soul. But the Otis family slept unconscious of their doom, and high above the rain and storm he could hear the steady snoring of the minister for the United States. He stepped stealthily out of the wainscoting, with an evil smile on his cruel, wrinkled mouth and the moon hid her face in a cloud as he stole past the great oriel windows, where his own arms and those of his murdered wife were blazoned in azure and gold. On and on he glided, like an evil shadow, 
the very darkness seeming to loathe him as he passed. Once he thought he heard something call and stopped, but it was only the baying of a dog from the Red Farm, and he went on, muttering strange sixteenth-century curses, and ever and anon brandishing the rusty dagger in the midnight air. Finally, he reached the corner of the passage that led to luckless Washington's room. For a moment he paused there, the wind blowing his long grey locks about his head and twisting into grotesque and fantastic folds the nameless horror of the dead man's shroud. Then the clock struck the quarter, and he felt the time was come. He chuckled to himself and turned the corner, but no sooner had he done so than with a piteous wail of terror he fell back and hid his blanched face in his long bony hands. Right in front of him was standing a horrible spectre, motionless as a carven image and monstrous as a madman's dream. Its head was bald and burnished, its face round and fat and white, and hideous laughter seemed to have writhed its features into an eternal grin. From the eyes streamed rays of scarlet light. The mouth was a wide well of fire and a hideous garment, like to his own swathed with its silent snows the titan form. On its breast was a placard with a strange writing in antique characters, some scroll of shame, it seemed, some record of wild sins, some awful calendar of crime, and, with its right hand, it bore aloft a falchion of gleaming steel. Never having seen a ghost before, he naturally was terribly frightened, and, after a second hasty glance at the awful phantom, he fled back to his room, tripping up on his long winding sheet as he sped down the corridor and finally dropping the rusty dagger into the minister's jackboots, where it was found in the morning by the butler. Once, in the privacy of his own apartment, he flung himself down on a small pallet bed and hid his face under his clothes. After a time, however, the brave old Canterville spirit asserted himself, and he determined to go and speak to the other ghost as soon as it was daylight. Accordingly, just as the dawn was touching the hills with silver, he returned towards the spot where he had first laid eyes on the grisly phantom, feeling that, after all, two ghosts were better than one, and that, by the aid of his new friend, he might safely grapple with the twins. On reaching the spot, however, a terrible sight met his gaze. Something had evidently happened to the spectre, for the light had entirely faded from its hollow eyes. The gleaming falchion had fallen from its hand, and it was leaning up against the wall in a strained and uncomfortable attitude. He rushed forward and seized it in his arms, when, to his horror, the head slipped off and rolled on the floor. The body assumed a recumbent posture, and he found himself clasping a white, dimity bed curtain, with a sweeping brush, a kitchen cleaver, and a hollow turnip lying at his feet. Unable to understand this curious transformation, he clutched the placard with feverish haste, and there, in the grey morning light, he read these fearful words. Ye oldest ghost, ye only true and original spook, 
Beware of ye imitations, all others are counterfeit. The whole thing flashed across him. He had been tricked, foiled, outwitted. The old Canterville look came into his eyes. He ground his toothless gums together and, raising his withered hands high above his head, swore, according to the picturesque phraseology of the antique school, that when Chanticleer had sounded twice his merry horn, deeds of blood would be wrought and murder walk abroad with silent feet. Hardly had he finished this awful oath when, from the red-tiled roof of a distant homestead, a cock crew. He laughed a long, low, bitter laugh and waited. Hour after hour he waited. But the cock, for some strange reason, did not crow again. Finally, at half-past seven, the arrival of the housemaids made him give up his fearful vigil, and he stalked back to his room, thinking of his vain oath and baffled purpose. There he consulted several books of ancient chivalry, of which he was exceedingly fond, and found that, on every occasion on which his oath had been used, Chanticleer had always crowed a second time. Perdition sees the naughty fowl, he muttered. I have seen the day when, with my stout spear, I would have run him through the gorge and made him crow for me and twere in death. He then retired to a comfortable lead coffin and stayed there till evening. some spooky goings-on in that story, weren't there, today? Oof, I got quite involved as well, if I'm absolutely honest. Well, it, it was a little long, that chapter, a bit longer than I was expecting. So let's plough on, shall we, with the Book of the Week. So my book of the week is an Anderson Press publication, Naturellement. It came out on the 5th of November this year, 2020. It's by Sally Nichols, who you might recall, if you are a fan of the podcast, I interviewed a little while ago, maybe in May, April or May, when she uh, released her book with Viv Schwartz, about the raccoon family and their experiences of lockdown, the name of which does escape me. Uh, this is a book for slightly older readers, 12 to 17, so young adults, and it's a perfect Christmas book. It's called The Silent Stars Go By. I actually haven't read it, but it is on my reading list, and it's a bit of a, a historical drama. It's set during the... First World War or the Second World War? I think I think the First World War. In fact, I'm certain the First World War. I was just doubting what I understood of history for a moment. And it's about a 17-year-old Margot Allen, who is a vicar's daughter. And uh, she has her fiancé, Harry, but Harry does have to go away to the war and uh, he's reported missing in action. 
Uh, but Margot realizes that she's expecting a child, which at that time, a child out of wedlock, which means a child out of marriage, would have been quite the scandal. So the child, when it's born, is adopted by her parents and brought up as her younger brother. Now, this situation is probably quite distressing for Margot, but it's made worse when Harry returns from the war and is after answers. And uh, that's as much as I am going to tell you. But uh, it's had amazing reviews. Um, Hilary McKay says it's gorgeous, poignant, unputdownable, a new Christmas classic. Uh, Love Reading for Kids says it's riveting, read in one sitting. Uh, driven by compelling characters who leap off the page, underpinned by a superb sense of social history. Now, if you have listened to my interview with Sally, then you will remember that um, social history and uh, historical narrative and sharing of historical stories is something that she considers to be extremely important. And I agree, because understanding our history helps us understand who we are now and also our future. Um, and I am so excited to read this book because it just looks I just want a, a, a snowy winter's morning a, a Sunday preferably I'd like to have a hot chocolate curl up on my sofa and read this book uh, it looks absolutely wonderful so do find yourself a copy of The Silent Stars Go By by Sally Nichols and I will put a link in the description of this podcast <laughs> Well, my darlings, we do find ourselves at the end of another story time with Mama G. Don't forget to join me next week when we will be reading Chapter 4 of The Canterville Ghost. Ooh, I'm very excited to find out what happens. And don't forget, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. Just search for at Mama G Stories. And uh, you can get tickets to see Eunice a musical at the Stanley Halls in South Norwood. It's running from December the 19th to December the 27th. Tickets are at stanleyhalls.org.uk slash box office. And let me tell you, I watched a run through yesterday and it's really good. It's funny. You will probably cry at some point and it's extremely uplifting. It's uplifting beyond what I was expecting. I am so excited. Um... Gravesend Panto, so the Panto I was going to be in at the Woodville, is a little up in the air at the moment due to the new tier system we have here in the UK. Uh, we're not sure if the Panto will be able to go ahead. The first few dates have been cancelled. Um, we're hoping that performances can recommence from the 19th of December, so uh, you can book tickets, but if performances are cancelled, you'll get a full refund and you'll also have the opportunity to purchase a download of the show because we filmed it this week and that was terribly exciting. Uh, what else do I have to tell you? And you know what? I think that's it for now. Don't forget you can find me on Glitterbeam Radio every Sunday at 1pm and I will see you all here next week. Bye. It's story time with Mama G. Come and hear a story with me. Love who you want to be. Learn these lessons and we'll go far It's story time Story time Story time with Mama